0: I would not be here today if it weren't for what I went through. I would not have the relationship with Jesus that I have today if I had not gone through that. Was there wreckage? Yes. Were there regrets? Yes. Have I been forgiven? Yes. Yes.
1: This is First Person. Welcome to this week's program. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Today, we'll meet a man who reached the very bottom when his drinking led to a physical and spiritual breakdown. Steve Sellers will join me in just a moment. If you're a new listener, let me explain that First Person is here each week at this time, exploring people's stories of faith and calling. We've had a wide variety of guests and topics over the past year, and we've learned over and over again of God's faithfulness in meeting people wherever they are and leading them to a meaningful and rewarding life in Christ. If you'd like to go back and explore some of our past interviews, they are archived online at FirstPersonInterview.com. There's also an online calendar of upcoming guests there at FirstPersonInterview.com, or you can visit us at Facebook.com slash FirstPersonInterview. Well, in telling his story, Steve Sellers hopes to give all of us insights into the life of the addict, but he also wants to point to the hope of a God-directed recovery from alcoholism or any other addiction. Steve and I met in Atlanta to sit down and talk about how things went from bad to worse for him until the Lord entered the picture, and I asked him to describe his life on this side of his addiction.
0: Right now, life is more than I could have ever imagined it being. Um, We'll get into the backstory later, but right now I am enjoying 15 years of sobriety with an incredible wife. I'm enjoying a new relationship with my children. I'm enjoying wonderful friendships with people that are driven by God, But most importantly, right now, my life is centered in Jesus Christ. Hmm.
1: A few years ago, could you have foreseen yourself saying what you just said?
0: Nobody who knew me 15 years ago would have believed a word that just came out of my mouth. (laughs) Uh, Why? What happened? We we are all addicted to sin. And my sin was alcohol. And alcohol had morally bankrupted me. I was drinking two-fifths of alcohol a day. Uh, When my father died in 1992, my mom, when I walked into her house, embraced me and said, I need you to give me strength today to get through this. I excused myself, went down to my dad's bar, drank a half a fifth of vodka, and came up and gave her all the strength she needed. And unknowingly at that time, alcohol then filled the void that my father's death had left behind. And I had become convinced through the years that followed that I could not live without it. Mm-hmm. When did you start drinking? I remember as a child sitting on my dad's lap as a 8- or 10-year-old drinking some Ham's beer or Grain Belt beer out of his can. Like anybody else in high school, at, at, during my time, I, I drank. It was what my friends did. It was what I did. Discontinued uh, through college. Uh, we never thought of it as, as an issue or a problem. The word alcoholism, was that wasn't us. You know, that was the, mm-hmm. the wino in the street. That was, you know, oh, my uncle, <laughs> but it was never, it was never us. It was never a concern. Mm. It became more of a concern for me when I was realizing that I was starting to hide bottles when I was starting to drink alone. You were married at this time? I was married at the time. I uh, was married to a woman that I'd actually met my first year of college. Uh, we lived in a small town in Northwest Iowa. I'd been a high school English teacher for 10 years. I, I tell people I was the head of an English department. I was actually the only English teacher in the school. <laughs> uh, we opted after 10 years to move to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, I lived with my brother-in-law at the time when my wife stayed behind to try to sell the house. And I got in a drinking habit with him. He was very successful. We used to meet at his house after work. That's where I was living temporarily. And we used to start drinking on schedule. And it was also at this time I started hiding the fact that I was drinking more than anybody else was. Mm -hmm. So it
1: it started to become a
0: pretty significant issue back probably around uh, 1989 for me.
1: But did that seem normal to you at the time? Was it just the socially acceptable thing to do?
0: It was socially acceptable until I realized that I was hiding it from people. It was socially acceptable until I was reaching under my bed at night and taking a drink out of a bottle that I'd hidden under my bed it was socially acceptable until I reached under the same bed the next morning and took a drink to start my day. And I started to realize that probably not everybody's doing this because I felt if everybody were doing it, I wouldn't be hiding the fact that I was doing it. Sure.
1: What was that first inkling that you got that uh, I, need, I need to reach outside myself here for some help?
0: I really didn't get that inkling until people put that idea in my head that perhaps I might have some problems. Who did that? Um, At the time, I was working for a very prestigious insurance agency in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and was starting to get confronted at work about lack of production. Uh, People had said they had smelled alcohol on my breath. When I was called in the first time to my boss's office, he asked me point blank, do you have a drinking problem? I struggled with how to answer the question until it dawned on me that I really didn't feel I had a problem.
1: You was, could control it anytime you
0: wanted to. I, you exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, actually, I was doing it with no problem at all. I mean, <laughs> what he should have asked, do you have a problem stopping? Because that's oh, when I realized okay. that my, my problem, perhaps, was starting to get more than what I thought I could handle. But you know, the thing about any addict, we're really the last to admit it. So how far did you sink, Steve? I sunk as far as the Lord needed to take me. In 1995, I uh, I had a breakdown. Uh, physical, spiritual, mental breakdown. I was at uh, home alone in my house, my wife and children, I had two children, had moved out. Uh, December 30th, I was home. Because of the alcoholism? Because of the alcoholism. And uh, Satan came to to claim me that night. That roaring lion. Yeah, he was there, he was in my house. And uh, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Lord came to my house that night too. There was spiritual warfare. Hmm. And uh, did, did, how did he come through other people? Just I was uh, th- 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 these these were stories that I shared years later because I, I just I, I didn't understand I didn't know how to express them. I didn't know how to express them. <laughs> but when I had uh, when I had I'd actually had called the police, I had hallucinated all day and felt that my daughter had been kidnapped. I couldn't find her. And while I was waiting for the police to come at the front door, this this white presence blew past me. I followed it with my eyes downstairs, where uh, where the voices of Satan had been calling me, and I know that the spirit of the Lord was there. He wouldn't, he, as much as I had turned my back on him, he was
1: not going to let me go. But it was still six weeks later before I finally was freed from my addiction. You, you didn't recognize that it was God that was seeking you at that point.
0: No, because I had not been praying for God. What I what I came to learn years later that other people were praying to God. Mm-hmm. God answered their prayers. Mm-hmm. He had not answered mine. Mm-hmm. I, I was like anybody. I was looking for a quick release. Yeah, uh, I wanted a microwave release for my addiction. I would pray at night, God, free me. I would wake up in the morning and I had the addiction. I was I was angry. I thought you you must not want me to stop, or else you would you would take this from me. When did the next turn come? the The next turn came about six weeks later. I had lost my job. I'd, I'd been in a treatment program, which I had failed. And I ended up going up to Minneapolis, where my sister lived, and stayed with my ex-brother-in-law, who to this day is still one of my dearest friends. I was still drinking, but I was still denying. I was still hiding the bottles under the bed. Um, I went to visit my sister, and my brother-in-law, for some reason, was directed down into the guest room, he
1: was suspicious.
0: He found the bottle. He wasn't a drinker. Uh, he was a recovering alcoholic. Yeah. Actually, yeah, he he knew he knew so the he, symptoms. he knew what to look for. Huh? Yeah, I was thinking he would be the guy to give me a little sympathy. <laughs> um, he and his wife, my my sister and her husband, confronted me, and they sent me to a detoxification clinic for the night. They had just they had had enough. I was I was drunk, and they sent me to a facility in Minneapolis called Mission Detox, and they left me there.
1: Did you feel abandoned? I mean, or did you, you were too drunk to know what was going on? I I was abandoned.
0: I was angry. I had made the decision that this was it. Once I got out, if I could get out, uh, I had made the decision since I had my car there that I was going to leave. I was going to take my bank card. Mm -hmm. I was going to clean out my family's bank account, Mm -hmm. and I was going to go away, and I was was just, I was going to be done with it. Mm -hmm. I had had enough. I just, I I didn't want to deal with these people anymore.
1: But... God put a, a
0: half Nelson on you? What, what happened? God put a full Nelson on you. A full Nelson, okay. I was uh, in the middle of the night. It was about 2 o'clock. I had wandered out from the room in which I was supposed to be staying. There were six or seven other men in there. It was, just, it was an atrocious facility. I went out into the cafeteria in the middle of the night, was sitting there stewing, uh, was so immersed in my anger that I hadn't noticed uh, that there was someone sitting across the table from me. I I didn't want anybody to be with me. I couldn't understand why there was somebody sitting there. There were fifteen other tables in the room. (laughs) I tried to ignore him. I tried to watch the television, but I could feel that he was staring at me. I I finally looked at him. He had a cut on his cheek. He was he was dirty, and there was a, a gash on his cheek. It had been bleeding, and I, I said what anybody would say: "What what happened to you?" and he had told me a story he had stolen a car he had run into a tree and he was going to jail in the morning and my first thought was you're a loser well you're messed up yeah you're really <laughs> messed up how you know i couldn't believe that i was sitting across a table with somebody like that and i said to him i said i said you're sick and his exact words to me were we're all sick oh boy we all need to be saved and that was my moment and it it just it overwhelmed me, and as I I, mean, I, it, I started to cry, I, I put my head down and I closed my eyes for maybe three seconds, and when I opened my eyes, I was alone at the table. Really? I was alone at the table. There was a nurse sitting at the nurse's station, and I I called her and I said, "Hey, where'd this guy was go?" was that mask man? <laughs> and she said, "There's nobody here. It's just you and me. You need to go to bed." The next morning, I, I, I stayed up all night and waited for the 16 other men in the facility to come out. I kept kept looking for him, and there was no man there. And uh, I, I, I that was it. I was done. I went home, and I I knew somehow I I, I knew what had happened, but I, I I couldn't accept what had happened because, like all of us, I didn't deserve anything
1: like this, and yet I was freed that night a continuing story of victory through Jesus Christ. More of our conversation with Steve Sellers coming up in a moment. When you join us next week at this time, gospel music legends Bill and Gloria Gaither. We've often said we ache for some people who can't seemingly get the past in the past. That war has already been fought, and the good news is that war has been won. And we need to claim it as victory and get down the road. A very personal conversation with songwriters Bill and Gloria Gaither next time on First Person. Well, Steve, when we left you, you were in that detox center. And you finally reached the point where you knew you had a problem. What happened? I
0: I went home the next day. My brother-in-law drove me home in my car, and I immediately was taken into the emergency room at the hospital in Cedar Rapids, taken back up to the uh, psych ward where I had previously stayed about six weeks earlier, went through another four-week treatment program, and was let go after my insurance ran out, Uh, had nowhere to go, had no place to stay. The, The people that were with me in treatment took up a collection, had money for me to stay at a Red Roof Inn. I took the money, uh, bought a two-liter bottle of Mountain Dew, a bag of Doritos, and a pack of cigarettes. And I, I hadn't even smoked, but I knew that I needed trying to cover something, something up or... to get yeah. through the long yeah. night. And I started my journey and uh, realized that I had to, to learn how to live sober. And it, it was a really difficult thing to do. As, as anybody listening knows, when you give up an addiction... It's, it, it. there's an emptiness in
1: you that you just can't explain. It holds a power unlike anything else, right? it, it really does, yeah. yeah. So when did you realize it was the Lord th- that was pursuing you?
0: I ended up moving to Davenport, Iowa, and because I could not get a job in Cedar Rapids. My firing had been pretty public. And I was living in a, an apartment by myself, struggling with my job, struggling with being sober, realizing nobody would know if I drank except, mm-hmm. wait a minute,
1: Mm-hmm. God would know. Yeah, I was struggling. And okay. I was about two years into being sober. But you were on your own. Did you go through any AA or anything like that? I had
0: done AA while I was still in Cedar Rapids. Okay. But when I moved, I left my group. And, and trying to find a good AA group is like trying to find a good so church. So you
1: were very vulnerable.
0: I was extremely vulnerable. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I used to come home at night and throw my keys off of my third floor balcony realizing that if i was really serious about going to drink i'd have to go find my keys and uh, it, it it worked really well we do anything we can but i was driving around one day headed back to my office flipping through the radio uh, town i hadn't really been familiar with and i was just looking for a voice and i stumbled across the voice and i heard the voice say so you're telling me that if an alcoholic is not drinking but not doing anything to work on his recovery then he's just a dry drunk and I stopped because the voice I was hearing was the voice of David Jeremiah on his turning point. And I thought, that's exactly my problem. I'm not working on any aspect of my recovery. And I started that day to realize the emptiness that I had filled with alcohol when my dad died now needed to be filled with the Lord. And that's that was my a big turning point. That then. was my. That was my turning point. Yeah, yeah no pun intended. Point. That's no, the no. title of David's radio yeah, program. Yeah, but. exactly. Wow. Yeah. What happened? I went back to my office. Uh, I, I pulled out a piece of paper. I drew a line on the piece of paper, and underneath the line I wrote alcohol. And as I speak to treatment centers today and, and speak to recovering alcoholics, I tell them, you can put anything you want down there. Because as I said, we're all addicted to some kind of sin. So you can put pornography, you can put gambling, you can put food. We were talking yesterday about somebody who was addicted to money. But above the line, you put all the things that you pushed aside in pursuit of that addiction. Once you take the addiction out of it, you've you've got to fill that emptiness. And what what I have discovered in the past 15 years and what I tell people when I speak to them, the only way you can
1: truly recover is to fill it with the Lord. So when did you reach that point? It's the Lord Jesus Christ... That can give you the power to overcome all this.
0: It was that day and I, I didn't even know the Lord that well. I had been praying. I knew he I knew that he had freed me from my addiction. But that day when I got back to my office before I ripped that paper out of my notebook, I dropped on my knees and said, Lord, I'm yours. You tell me tell me what you need me to do.
1: And everything was a life of ease at that point, it, right? It was
0: just like being on a vacation. You know? <laughs> Somebody said, Do you ever still get the urge? Does the beast that you're that, that your addiction still come after you? And, and at this point in my life, I can say, no, it doesn't. But it's everything that, that goes along with your recovery, that it, that you can compromise your, your relationships with your kids, with your spouse, with your work. That's that's 24-hour-a-day yeah. work. Yeah.
1: I said that facetiously because mm-hmm. I'm sure it wasn't easy.
0: It's, it's been the most difficult and the most rewarding work that I have ever done. And this is what I impart to people when I speak to them. You can do this, too. But... It's not easy. Hmm. There, There's a comment that's made in, in The Sobering Truth. Faith can move mountains, but don't be surprised if God hands you a shovel.
1: <laughs> there had to be people that the Lord brought into your life then to disciple you or to you know, show you the way, so to speak.
0: I have been blessed for, for 20 years, even through the worst part of my life. I've had a, a dear, dear friend who is about 17 or 18 years older than I am who is a very strong Christian. Even when I didn't know the Lord, he was talking about the Lord. When I moved back to Cedar Rapids in 2001, I ended up working at a company owned by a a, a Christian. Those two men who are my Christian mentors work in the same office as I do in the same building. Every day, I am blessed with the opportunity to be surrounded by two men of God who don't have to say anything to me. (laughs) I just have to watch what Mm -hmm. they do and how they live their lives.
1: How do you describe the way the Lord has restored life to you? Tell me about, uh, about life today again. It, it's all about
0: restoration. Um, I, when I look at the things that I pushed aside in my life, um, my, my children, my family, I have, I have worked hard to restore my, restora- my restore my, my relationship with my kids. And I, I, we still struggle at times. There's still the past that hangs around in their heads. I, and and they're, they're very strong Christian women. I know they've forgiven me. But I have so much more respect for my godly duty as a father now, and I treat that the way God would want me to treat it. You've, you've met my wife. Mm-hmm. I've been blessed in the last five years to play the role of father, to be a, a husband, to be a good husband. I, I wasn't a good husband. I was a terrible husband. God gave me a chance to be a husband. So he's made all things new. He's given me the opportunity to make all things new. Yeah. I still you work still at a lot. Have, yeah, yeah, uh, I still have I to do the work. Yeah, yeah.
1: I understand that completely. Let's spend a few minutes talking to the person who needs the hope that your life is an example of, mm-hmm. because they may be struggling with a loved one. Maybe it's that person themselves, like you heard on the radio, mm-hmm. that know that they need to do something. Um, let's talk to them directly for a few moments.
0: The first thing that I say is that the cornerstone of any recovery, wherever you are, even if it's the first step in giving up your addiction, is faith. You you have to have faith in that person. I think it's so easy to give up. It's it's so easy to, to listen to somebody say, your husband is never going to get well. But the, it's so painful. It and and,
1: and it, it takes such a toll on the person who stands beside them. Yeah, it is. It is.
0: And I think that's one of the things that I, I like to... to emphasize with with our book is that as painful as it is god's healing power is greater than the power he gives others who are supposed to be able to heal us and if we listen to those words if we listen to the doctors if we listen to the counselors who say he's not going to get well we're shortchanging god's power hmm. and that's what i would tell them is you have to continue to believe because i am living proof that God will heal you. Even if it takes years? Even if it takes years. It, it's a never-ending journey. We we never reach a point in our recovery where we stand up and say, done, Yeah, I'm yeah, cured, Yeah, five years sober, give me my medal, hmm. I'm
1: on my way. You mentioned those mentors in your life. Uh, how else do you stay accountable and, and stay sober? I stay accountable with
0: other men who struggle with addictions. My wife and I have formed a ministry called Ship Recovery Incorporated, And we work primarily to help people embrace life beyond sobriety. We have two ongoing Bible studies right now, one through our church, uh, New Covenant in Cedar Rapids, and one through the Mission of Hope in downtown, in the inner city, um, Cedar Rapids, where we do recovery Bible studies. And uh, I speak at treatment centers. I do this not for anybody but the Lord, and, and, and the Lord is telling me, you know, you need to listen to what you're saying as well. You need to hold yourself accountable for these people. Um, so we, we reach out whenever we can to help others. How have you seen others change? I have a, a, a gentleman who's actually now a board member on our, uh, on our corporation. Met him when he was nine months sober. He was in treatment center when I first spoke to him. And when you speak publicly about things like this, nobody ever asks any questions, they wanna go home. When I got done speaking, I asked if anybody had any questions and this little guy in the back said, so how do you fill your emptiness in your life? And I said, I filled it with God. And we went on, there were some follow-ups, but I I met him the next night. I I had him call me the next night. And uh, in May, he celebrated his first year and is on fire for the Lord. And uh, he's, he's got it. He understands it. The, the Lord just wanted to change one person. If he could change one person, that person would tell somebody else and on and on and on. And that's all I've ever asked for. And, and this, this guy is my one person. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Of course, there's a lot of sadness in your story. Yeah. A lot of regrets, I'm sure. Yeah. But you don't look at it that way. You don't focus on that? You can't go back. You can't change what I've done. I mean,
0: it's, it's not the plan that I had for myself. When I visited with my high school counselor, 35 or 40 years ago this was not on my horizon this is not what i said i want to do this with my life i would not be here today if it weren't for what i went through i would not have the relationship with jesus that i have today if i had not gone through that was there wreckage yes were there regrets yes have i been forgiven yes
1: big yes yes yeah Thanks for listening to Steve Sellers' story today on First Person. He would be the first to tell you that his recovery is ongoing and that he depends on God every day to sustain and deliver him. If you would like to talk with someone about your life and need for Christ, please call this number 888-NEED-HIM. That's 888-NEED-HIM, where a caring person will listen and talk to you about your need. Steve's story is told more fully in his book, The Sobering Truth, and you can learn more about it and much more by following the links to his website. Those links are found at FirstPersonInterview.com. On the website, Steve has placed additional links and resources to help both the victims and their loved ones deal with addictions of all types. Start at FirstPersonInterview.com and follow the links to today's guest. Well, I'm very pleased to say that two guests will join us next week, Bill and Gloria Gaither. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next time for First Person.